Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation and to explain why we're going there. Revelation 14, we're going to be in verse 6 and 7 momentarily. But we have been looking for many weeks at the book of Revelation and many months at the unfolding of what is going on right now in heaven. And what we got to in Revelation 4 and 5 is the throne room scene, the, the glass sea as it's called with the throne of God in the middle, and surrounding it are countless individuals who have been redeemed and they're, they're singing about their salvation and there's a common denominator we see. All of them are really saved. They really made it. Uh, they're born again. They're secure forever. Uh, they are glorified saints. So we have that picture in heaven. But often there's a detachment between what was spoken to those people before they got there and what happened to them to make sure they got there. And the record of that is in front of us. It's the Word of God. The Word of God talks about all of those people we see in heaven, how they got there. And so one strand that we're looking at this morning is what you see in front of you. How did Jesus Christ himself? Now, if you wonder, you know, whether Moses had it straight or Peter had it straight, I don't. But if you ever wonder, most people wouldn't worry that Jesus made any mistakes. I mean, all the rest of us humans make mistakes. Jesus didn't. So how did Jesus Christ himself present the plan of salvation? If there's anything you want to be sure of that you know and that you adhere to and agree with what Jesus taught. And so he did so much talking. John said you couldn't even write down everything that he did and all of his words and all of his deeds. So what we're looking at is just one sector, and you see that up there too, the gospel in the book of John. So, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to continue in our look through Jesus explaining the plan of salvation from the gospel by John. But before we do that, I want you to think about something. God is described in the Bible as a Savior. Now, we always think of Jesus our Savior, but the Bible also clearly describes and portrays and names God as the Savior. You see, God is characterized by a desire to save. He is, by his nature, a Savior. And so, God is not willing that any should perish. Now, let me show you the actual reference on that. That's 2 Peter 3.9. Now, if you read 2 Peter 3.9, in a vast number of churches uh, in America and around the world, all of a sudden, whoever reads that will start doing gymnastics. They'll do backflips. They will go all over the place saying, now, if you really knew the Greek, it isn't what it, what it sounds like. It doesn't really mean that. It doesn't mean that God is, not, God is not willing that any should perish. It means something else. But actually, that's what it says, whether you read it in the Greek or the English or in any language of the world. It actually said that God, as Savior, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you know what that reveals? The character of God. God is a savior. And what's amazing is, God wants everyone to hear his truth. He wants everyone to receive the gospel. So much so, our text this morning in Revelation 14. It's almost like layers of gospel giving. And you see them all the way through the Bible. But finally, in Revelation 14, we're at the top 
layer as far as in the hierarchy of how the gospel is presented. You know, I think it's this week, maybe it's next week. America has billions, if not trillions of dollars of, of military hardware over in the Middle East. It's been slowly assembling over there. I think we have more aircraft carriers over there than we've had since, uh, you know, the Gulf War. And they're moving all kinds of other stuff over there, and we've already moved over the most advanced radar. And the reason for that is they're testing for once all of our allies and all of our ships and their ships and airplanes to make sure that all the layers of interception work. And they want to make sure that they can intercept anything from a huge intercontinental missile to shorter range. And so they're, they're practicing orchestrating all these layers. Did you know in Revelation we see the high layer? What happens is that God, who previously has sent us for the last 2,000 years into all the world to preach the gospel, you saw the ad, if you're here at the very beginning of the service, the Todd Arend mission speaker ad that, that they were playing. By the way, Todd was coming to Tulsa Bible Church as a, a normal college student and fell in love with one of the girls at Tulsa Bible Church where I pastored and just couldn't stay away from church. We thought it was my preaching, it was her. And, uh, and actually, and he grew up, boy, I can't wait for you to hear him. He is a wonderful servant. But God has given not only to us the, the cause of going into all the world and preaching the gospel, but after he takes his church out of the world, he immediately deploys 144,000 Jews. That's Revelation 7. Then he deploys two mighty witnesses, prophets. That's Revelation 11. And then the final layer, Revelation 14. God sends an angel. And this desire of God as Savior, starting in the Garden of Eden when God himself comes looking for his rebellious people, continues all the way to the climactic ending at the end of days for earth. This evangelistic angel we're going to read about is preaching the good news concerning everlasting life, an entrance into the kingdom of God, and urging people of the world by the time we get to chapter 14 of Revelation, to turn their allegiance from the beast, the false prophet and the antichrist, to the lamb, the substitute, their only hope of salvation. The message that God sends via this angel evangelist is called by other terms. Now here, we're going to read, it's called the everlasting gospel. God calls it the everlasting gospel. Now remember, make sure that your concept and my concept of the gospel is in agreement with God's. God said, what this angel says that we're going to read is the everlasting gospel. But it's just one of seven times the gospel is described in the Bible. It's also called in the New Testament the gospel of God, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of peace. It's called the glorious gospel, and it's called the gospel of the kingdom. But here... In this passage, it's the good news that God saves by the forgiveness of sin and will open his kingdom to all who will repent and believe. And it's always been the same from cover to cover in the Bible. Abraham, or Abram as he was called then, had to repent of his false moon god polytheistic worship and believe in the one true living God. Nothing has changed. Adam and Eve had to repent of trying to clothe themselves with their own little fig leaf outfits and surrender to the blood shed sacrificial offering 
and those skins that God provided for them. See, God has always worked the same. Many different ways of describing his entrance requirements, but it's always the same. It always involves substitute, always involves repentance and belief. Now, what does God the Savior do? And when you get to Revelation 14, I don't know when we'll get there, all of us, but this morning, when you get to this moment in the, the chronology of God's future events, the earth is convulsing in the tribulation. In fact, people are dying like flies. One out of every two people are going to die. You talk about people dying like flies when every other person is going to be dead before long. It's a very serious time. So what does God do? Well, in Revelation 14, verse 6, God the Savior shows his final offering of salvation. So that's our text this morning. Let's stand together, follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to be reading this and verse 7. But look what it says here. At the convulsion of the earth in the, the horrific climax of the tribulation, then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every language, and to every people. Now, this is God's eternal gospel. Listen to verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Wow. That is the eternal gospel. Fear God as creator. Worship God as creator. And that's what's broadcast at low-level altitude from a mighty angel who covers every inch of the planet so that people from every tribe, every land, every tongue, every nation hear the everlasting gospel. God is the Savior. Let's bow before him in prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word. We trust your word. Uh, we do not need to defend your word. You defend it. We do not need to add or take away or correct your word. You have given it to us. All we need to do is to believe, unleash your word into our lives, and let you do what you promised. And I pray that you would this morning. You've promised to open the eyes of our understanding. You've promised to open our wills and our hearts to your spirit working. And so we ask you to do all of that. Quicken us. Help us to have ears to hear what your spirit has to say from your word today. In the name of Jesus, we ask for that. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, God's eternal gospel has several elements. The first is that Christ, Christ is the, the ultimate display of the gospel. Jesus Christ here on earth is the the most magnificent presentation of the gospel. And in the Gospel of John, if you want to turn there from Revelation back to John's gospel, we're actually going to start in chapter 1. 
And I'm going to share with you, one after another, each time Jesus Christ, as he's unveiled in this gospel, is presenting another element of his gospel. But, but the gospel by John captures Jesus on earth as the greatest display of the love of God, the Savior. And that's what Jesus is. And the fourth, the final gospel... We call it the gospel by John. It's not the gospel of John. It's not a gospel John thought of. It's the gospel written down by John at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So it's the gospel by John, not of, by. He didn't invent it. God did. He just presents it like we're supposed to. But it's, it's capturing Jesus who came perfectly, the virgin birth, that's why liberal churches don't like the virgin birth. Why? The virgin birth is connected to a supernatural Christ. A supernatural Christ who did things that are even harder to believe than the six days of creation. You know, I, I met someone in, in first service and they said that, that they have a missionary relative that refuses to present literal creationism because it offends people, because they know that science has disproved it. I said, so what do they think of Jesus walking on water? You ever think of that? That's harder to believe. How about Jesus taking one set of five little barley cakes and feeding 30,000 people with them? That's harder too. You understand what I mean? The whole Bible is hard. Why not just give them the whole thing and, and not worry about trying to take out the parts that are hard for them? And see, the liberals don't want a virgin birth because it isn't scientifically possible. But God did it. It's a miracle. The Spirit of God moved upon Mary and conceived within her the only human being that was sinless. She wasn't, by the way. Mary wasn't. Neither was her mother. Only Jesus was, her, her virgin-born son. Jesus also lived perfectly. He proclaimed the way to God perfectly. He died to save all to come, that come to him, and he saved them perfectly. You see, we, we don't have an imperfect salvation one that's going to peter out or might not make it all the way there. We might not, you know, we might make it almost to heaven, but then we got to go to purgatory for a little while to get the rest. No, we're saved perfectly and eternally, but John is capturing the very same gospel that was sweeping the Roman Empire. If you know anything about the order of the books of the Bible, John was a late arrival. In fact, he finishes the revelation of God. And so we had, we had actually James, the pastor of the first church, and then Paul started his epistles, and then the gospel writers started writing, and then we have Peter and Jude and all these others that are writing, and then finally, somewhere near the end, John starts writing his three little epistles, and then he writes the gospel by John, and then he writes the revelation, and it's over. But what John describes in this, this five-part writing, the gospel, three epistles, and the revelation is the gospel that was sweeping the Roman Empire. The Holy Spirit of God moved on John the Apostle to write for us so that the, the world would know what was the message that Jesus Christ, the Master, the Master himself, God in human flesh, what message did Jesus share that led to people being in heaven? And that's what we have before us, holding it. We actually have our own copy. Christ's salvation invitations. Well, Jesus is presented in the gospel by John as the one who prayed for the price of sin on the cross. But Jesus presented the way that anyone who wanted to be saved could be saved. Jesus just looked at the crowds and he says, come to me. 
If you are heavy laden and, and if you're laboring, I will give you rest. You can come to me. And by the way, Hebrews compares salvation to a rest and entering into the rest. And Jesus was offering salvation. And so John captures that. But as we look through these two dozen, by the way, there are 24 at least. You could cut some of them into separate ones. But there are at least 24 scenes where the gospel is presented. And what we see is, the, though the different times Jesus shares the gospel, he almost never repeats himself. Now, that's why I put together the John 3, because he keeps saying, born again, born again, born again, born again, born again, so many different ways, but it's the same concept. But though there's so many different times he shares the gospel, if you look at the different scenes, he almost never repeats himself. It's almost like every time Jesus shares the gospel, it's unique, but it's the same pathway. You know, you would think that he was selling a lot of different pathways, but if you really analyze it, there's just one. And he said it. There is the way. There is the truth. And there is the life. And it's Jesus Christ. So this morning, Jesus gives us the content of the gospel messages. That, that's what I want you to see. I want you to actually... And, and look in your Bible, in chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12. And look at the content. Don't just look at the words. Think, put a frame around it and see what is Jesus saying. The content. Ask yourself, if you were standing out in the crowd listening to Jesus talk, or if you were in the first century churches when John's letter, the Gospel by John, was copied and circulated, those people that were, many of them alive through the lifetime of Christ, what was the message that they were hearing, captured by John for the church? Well, number one, every detail of what makes us human, most of us don't understand. See, I don't want you to get boggled down with this. I mean, did you know that our DNA is so intricate that there are trillions of little switches within the DNA system that clicks on all of the, the, the development that makes us human? We're all built of the same building blocks. I mean, every for life form on the earth has the same, you know, we're all from this planet and we use the same building blocks. But the genetic switches make us human. And if all those switches are not in the genetic material, we're not human. And, you know, few people understand that. The, the genome is so complex that few people master and totally understand it. The reason I say that is salvation is very similar. Did you know from cover to cover the Bible is presenting this, this God who is a savior and he's dealing uniquely all the way through, but it's the same pathway. God doesn't have many ways to heaven. The people in the ark didn't get to heaven one way and the people in the, you know, in the Exodus event got a different way and Adam and Eve got a different way and you know, Jonah preached a little different gospel to the Ninevites and Jesus did one thing and the apostles did another. No. There's one God, there's one destination, and he's orchestrating all other people to get on the same road. So what I'm saying is salvation is much like DNA. There are so many different elements of it. Some theologians might know a lot of it. Most people know some of it. Some people know very little of it. But basically what the Lord is saying is this, that if the, the salvation switches are not present, justification and sanctification and redemption, if they're not operating, if they're not responding to the Holy Spirit, if they're not fed by God's word in our lives, we're not saved. See, Jesus said, 
there's a day coming when everybody is going to stand in front of him. And he's going to look at them, and he's going to say to them, you were religious. You were involved with the Bible. You were involved with ministry. But you didn't know me. Because salvation is not what I do or have done or did. Jesus said it's knowing me. And that's what he presents all the way through. John captures 24 times, and those 24 times Jesus shared the gospel, the people that responded to him become the multitude of believers who surround the throne. They join those and are a part of them. Well, number one, here we go. Let's go through them. A believer is someone who possesses Christ and becomes God's child by a supernatural event. I mentioned this last week. John 1.12, but to as many as received him, those who believe in his name, they become children of God. That is a supernatural event to become God's child. I can't just say, I'm one of his children. I mean, you know, every time someone rich and famous leaves money, uh, all these people show up and they say they're related to them. Did you know God won't be taken in? He knows whether you're born into his family or not. It's a supernatural event. Verse 13, we are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, it's something only God can do. I can't do it. That's why you have to be very careful about people. They say, well, what I did and what I'm doing, what I'm hoping, what I'm trusting in, instead of saying Jesus did it all. He paid the entire price. He suffered in my place. He is my only hope. So number one, a believer is someone who possesses Christ and becomes God's child by a supernatural event. They couldn't do it themselves. Their parents couldn't do it. The pastor couldn't do it. The church couldn't do it. Only God can do it. That's John 1, 12, and 13. Secondly, a believer is someone who understands salvation only by trusting in a substitute. Now we're getting into how the people in the Old Testament got saved. They, the ones who were saved didn't think that they were saved by their animal. They didn't think they were saved by their incense. They didn't think they were saved by all the trips they made to the tabernacle or temple or to the altar before the tabernacle and temple were made. They understood the idea that something was dying in their place. And that idea of a substitute is very foundational to salvation. In fact, John the last prophet of the Old Testament, when he saw Jesus in John 1, when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. There's the ultimate substitute. There's the one who doesn't deserve it, who got it, is going to be the sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. Thirdly, John also says, I didn't know him, verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, this is God calling John to be a prophet. And he says, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John's description as the last Old Testament prophet of Jesus Christ is that the salvation Jesus would bring was a salvation that has this spirit Baptism. Did you know everything that God does, people try and counterfeit. Uh, God said that, that the children of Israel were in a covenant relationship with him and a sign of the covenant was circumcision. So you know what? The people start counterfeiting and saying, we've been circumcised, we're God's people. God says, no, no, that circumcision was just an outward symbol of a heart that's circumcised that only I can do and you don't have that. And a little bit further in time, baptism. 
The baptism was, remember John the Baptist was baptizing people that were repenting of their sins and saying, God, we want to do whatever you want us to do. And so people says, okay, we'll start baptizing people. And people started getting baptized. And God says, no, that baptism was an outward picture of something only I can do in the heart, overwhelm you with the Spirit and regenerate you and save you. Believer is someone who is overwhelmed, baptized, supernaturally regenerated, transformed by the Spirit of God. Not by the church. Not by an emotional experience. Although it is an experience and it often brings emotions. But the experience and the emotions aren't salvation. Nor are the mechanics, nor are the outward signs of it. Uh, did you know it went from circumcision to baptism to, you know what, modern day counterfeits? that are confusing people are? Praying a prayer and going forward and making a decision. Praying the prayer, going forward and making a decision is an outward indicator of an inward transformation. See, what's amazing is, just like some people trusted in their circumcision, other people trusted in their baptism, there are many that are going to say, Lord, Lord, I prayed. I followed right after him on the TV. I did that. In fact, I did it with all of them. The Lord says, yeah, you did that. But I didn't know you personally. I didn't overwhelm you. I didn't completely change you from the inside out. You tried to keep up with them and act like them, but you never had the internal supernatural change. Fourthly, in John 2, a believer is described by Christ as someone who is saved by hanging on to Christ alone. In John 2.11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed he was salvation. In other words, salvation is a person. He's our substitute. We cling to him. That's how we get saved. Not by drinking the wine at the wedding in Cana. Not by stirring the pots there. They put their faith in him. You see, it's always been a supernatural faith in a substitute. Well, John 3, and as we got there, we see a believer as someone who gets to start life over again. They see Christ as their only hope to live the, the truth and to love the light, and they have God's wrath removed forever from them. Now, note these in your Bible. It says, look at John 3 and verse 3. This, this is, this, remember I told you that Jesus says the same thing, kind of all different directions to Nicodemus. He says this, Jesus answered and said to him, this is a religious man. This is a man who had offered every sacrifice in the book. This is a man who'd, who knew the Bible backward and forward. Nicodemus was an amazing teacher in Israel. He knew all this. He knew the Bible. He worked in the temple. He'd offered all those sacrifices, put his hands on the head of the offering and all that stuff. He wasn't saved. Why? Because God needed to give him a new heart. It's a supernatural event. It's not something you can do yourself. And so Jesus said, most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, all your religiosity in the world isn't going to get you there you have to have a supernatural event. You have to be born again. Verse 7. Nicodemus couldn't believe it. Jesus said, don't marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. It took a while to sink in with Nicodemus. He went, oh, I've done all this stuff and I'm not going to the kingdom of God? Wow. But you know what Jesus was telling him? You have to be born again. You have to have a new beginning. 
You, just as definitely as you came into this world, you have got to come into the spirit world. Salvation is a new birth. It's an event. It's supernatural. A believer sees Christ as their only hope. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish. It, it's, he's the one that gives eternal life. Verse 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the substitute that whoever believes in him won't perish. That's our only hope. Christ, not the church, not what I did, what Jesus did. And verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Christ is the only hope. Again, in verse 20, a believer lives the truth and believer loves the light. See, see, Jesus was telling Nicodemus because Nicodemus was in a system that people could just get into. I mean, people had just done it for years and they just could do it. They, they could go through the liturgy without even thinking. They could be doing the grocery list and be rattling off all the pieces because it just was something they knew. But you know what Jesus said? Everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light. A believer lives the truth. It isn't just external. It's on the inside. It's something they live. The truth internalized. They receive, the Bible says, the engrafted word that transforms them on the inside. And it says, the lost, though, hate the light. They don't want to come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. They don't want to come to the light of the word. They don't want to read the Bible. Remember what Mark Twain said? You don't remember Mark Twain? Mark Twain said... It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. And he didn't like them. And he went away from the light. Do you understand? That's why people don't, they, they really aren't into too much of God's word and, and teaching and doctrine. They don't want to know too much because it's the light. And they don't want to be exposed. But verse 21, but he who does the truth, see, if you, if you live the truth, then you love. If living it is doing it, doing the truth, comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. When we come to the light, we say, yeah, there is no good thing within me. I cannot earn myself. No matter how much holy habits that I cultivate, if it's not prompted from within by a new heart, it's of no use. See, we want to be able to say everything in my life has been done in God. He did it. He saved me. I didn't save myself. My parents didn't save me. My church didn't save me. My good works didn't save me. God. Salvation is of the Lord. It's been done in God. A believer has God's wrath pulled off of their life by accepting the Son. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God's wrath is attached to sin. You know, over in the Syrian conflict, they think that they've got a Sam... Strella missile that's a heat seeker and you know they're all worried about that now once that that thing locks on to the heat signature it just goes for it did you know that God's wrath seeks after sin forever and he is his wrath is poured out eternally on sin that means the instant of our death if we die with any sin on us God's wrath is forever going to be attached to that sin that's why the Roman Catholic Church has the extreme unction in purgatory because they know people die with sin on them because they preach a deficient gospel. You know what the gospel is? 
the instant of our salvation, all sin, past, present, future, is removed. That means you can never die with sin on you. We're still sinning, but we're not characterized by being sinners. Jesus became that sin for us. All. He only died on the cross once. Either he paid for it or he didn't. We can't pay for it any other time. Either the wrath of God abides on us because we have our sin, or it abided on Christ on the cross. So a believer has God's wrath pulled off. But now, let's go to chapter 4, because this is fascinating, and I want to end here this morning. Jesus ties worship and salvation in John chapter 4 into one amazing package. In fact, I hope in this little tiny bit of time we have left that you understand more about worship than you've ever understood before, because what Jesus does is he uses, first of all, a salvation event. Jesus presents the gospel to the bad Samaritan. You've all heard of the good Samaritan in Luke 10. John 4 is the bad Samaritan. This is a woman that's been living with so many men she can't even count them, and marrying some sounds like Elizabeth Taylor, you know, uh, with all of her husbands. That's who this woman is. She's the bad Samaritan, the woman at the well. And Jesus shares the best teaching on worship anywhere. He contrasts what she's doing as a Samaritan with what the Jews are doing that's wrong with true worship. And as you look at those three, all of a sudden, we see that we're still struggling in Christendom today with the same problems they had 2,000 years ago. Okay, real quickly. In John 4, a believer is someone who drinks Christ as the water of life. And, and they find him as the spring of life, and he begins uh, to, to draw them to worship. Where is that? Well, in verse 10. This is Jesus sharing the gospel with her. And he said, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is living water? It's the water of life. It's water that makes us have endless life. Do you remember from history, that great explorer, Ponce de Leon. Remember, what was he looking for in Florida? Fountain of youth. Guess what? This is the fountain of youth. Jesus said, if you believe in me, I give you the water of life. And it isn't just one drink. It starts a fountain that brings eternal life. Guess what? The fountain of youth is not in Florida. That's why I think all the older people are moving down there. They're looking for it still. It's not just Ponce de Leon looking for it. Everybody's looking for it. Guess what? It's in Michigan. And everywhere else the gospel is preached and the Bible is read. There's nothing wrong with going to Florida. I had a whole crowd after first service got on me. And I said, the fountain of youth is in Florida too, but it's not where they're looking for it. It's in Christ, okay? But in him we have living water. Jesus continues and he says in verse 14, look at John 4, 14. All of a sudden when we're saved, we have the source of living water within us. It isn't just we're running looking for a cup to get that another drink out of it. Jesus moves the fountain inside of us. Whoever drinks, verse 14, of the water I give him will never thirst, but the water I give him will become in him a fountain springing up. See, we have this endless, overflowing life. John 7, we'll be getting there in, in a few chapters, but Jesus says the Spirit of God becomes a river flowing out of us. That's one of the evidences of salvation. Is your life like an overflowing river of the power of the Spirit of God? That's what the DNA of salvation produces, God moves in. If it's not, we're hindering it. See, that's, that's what discipleship is all about. We know how the engine is supposed to operate. When you have a car, you take it to mechanic. You don't bring the mechanic the car when it's running correctly. You bring it when you don't think it's running correctly, and he shows you how to bring it back to the way it was designed. What we're looking at is how salvation was designed. 
And discipleship is helping people understand why they're not operating with this river. And, and the Lord says it's our sins and iniquities that separate us from him. Verse 23, drinkers become worshipers, true worshipers. The hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers worship the Father. Jesus says, if you come to me, ask me for this life-giving water, this supernatural salvation, you will become a worshiper. Wow. And God has specific worship that he wants. And by the way, it worked. And many of the Samaritans of that city were convinced that Christ had it right, that he was their only savior. And it's interesting what they said. Uh, they believed because of the word of the woman, so some of us, we can uh, lead other people to Christ. He told me all that I ever did. In verse 41, many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you said, but we have heard him. And we know that this indeed is Christ, the savior of the world. See, they were convinced. Okay, let's do some quick lessons on worship. So, okay, this woman got saved. Uh, it's not the way I would ever share the gospel. Say, hey, ask, ask me to tell you about a drink that will give you everlasting life. I mean, that is not the way we normally share the gospel. But remember, Jesus knew exactly what she needed to hear. And he had a metaphor right there, a well. And he knew how to connect it and bring them on the same path. Because everybody that's going to heaven, everybody that's around that throne has that water of life. And that's what Jesus was saying. But let's talk about today. We need to contrast Christ, what he brings out with this bad Samaritan, the woman at the well. And this is what we're doing. I want to show you three things. Samaritan worship, Jewish worship, and what God is advocating. Samaritan worship is self-styled worship. Jesus said, you're doing what you don't even know. In fact, the Samaritans rejected all the Bible except the Pentateuch. So they rejected 34 books of the Bible and only kept five. They were just like the Sadducees, who also, uh, you know, only believed in the Pentateuch, and they didn't like the rest of the Bible. The Jews, they took all, and, and I mean, the Jews were so careful. They, they just regulated everything, and they would go, uh-uh, 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 you know, and they were just very mechanical. But true worship, Jesus said, isn't self-styled, nor is it carefully regulated. It's prompted from the Spirit of God within us. That's interesting. Next, what, what the Lord says is, the Samaritans had what we would call warm heresy. They were enthusiastic in their worship, but they didn't have proper information. So Jesus said, it's wrong. It can be as warm as you want. If it's not based on proper information, I reject it. The Jews, however, had cold orthodoxy. It was dead worship with the right information. So Jesus said, you can have the wrong information, be all excited about it, I reject that. You can have the right information and be dead and lifeless about it, and I reject that too. So what was he wanting? Eager, excited, enthusiastic, heartfelt devotion to the truth of God. Fed by the word of God that flows from the spirit of God. See, that's what true worship is. Next, we'll contrast them again. The Samaritans worshiped in spirit, but not in truth. You worship what you don't know. I mean, they were spirited worshipers. They just didn't have truth-based worship. The Jews worshiped in truth, but lacked the spirit. It was lifeless. God says, I want those who worship in the spirit and with truth. Next contrast. 
the Samaritan worship was enthusiastic heresy. Heat without light. I mean, they were just carrying on. In fact, they still do. There's still Samaritans in Gerizim. If you go over to Israel, you can go there. They're still cutting lambs, spurting the blood all over. They're so enthusiastic, they get it all over their clothes. They still do sacrifices to this day in Samaria. And Jesus said, you're very enthused, but you're heretics. You don't have the light of the word. And that's very interesting to think about today because there's a lot of enthusiastic heresy under the auspices of the church. Then the Jews had barren orthodoxy, light without heat. They had so much light, but it was like Antarctica, pure white, dead and cold. And Jesus said, worship is not external activity for which an environment must be created. Do you see what the Jews did? They were into getting the worship environment. And they had the right clothes, and they had the right incense, and they had the right curtains, and they had the right outfits, and they had the right ritual and rigmarole, and it was only when it was in the right environment. And God says, no, it's not the environment. It's whether my spirit is coming from your hearts. So the Samaritans' problem was it was sincere enthusiasm and aggressiveness. All are important, but only if they're based on the truth. For the Jews, truth is foundational, but if it doesn't result in an eager, excited, enthusiastic heart, it's deficient. True worship takes place on the inside, in the spirit. Do you know what the most important environment for worship is? It's not the setting, it's not incense, it's not quiet music or loud music, it's not the lighting, it's not the enthusiasm of the people on the platform, it's whether the worshipers come overflowing with the Holy Spirit of God. The most important worship preparation is in the heart alone, in the Word. Samaritan worship, Jewish worship, true worship. Worship that occurred on Mount Gerizim was enthusiastic heresy. Worship offered at Jerusalem was barren, lifeless orthodoxy. God wanted uh, us to know the same two extremes are always going to be with us. I think they're very present today. Gerizim had the spirit, but not the truth. Jerusalem had the truth, but not the spirit. Jesus rebuked both styles. And what I say is this. If you travel the world, some of the most wonderful worship I've ever experienced did not have the atmosphere I can remember times being in Eastern Europe when the Iron Curtain was still in place and going to barns where they set up crude benches where it was dirt floor that smelled like manure. There were holes in the ceiling. It would rain. They had no sound system. They had no prettiness. They had no incense or lights. And certainly nobody was up there that was a world-class singer. They didn't even have very good instruments. It was overwhelming worship that people wept that people that came in were moved. Why? Because the worship formed as the worshipers gathered full and overflowing of the Spirit. And when all those overflowing, full of the Spirit worshipers gathered, they reached a critical mass and they transformed the barn or the rented room or the front room of someone's house into the most glorious atmosphere of worship has nothing to do with the music, the lighting, or the talent, or the plan. It's in the hearts. And the Lord says, be careful. 
Which takes us back to the last time in chapter 4. A believer is someone who takes Christ at his word. If that's the kind of worship Jesus wants, we just take him at his word. This man believed the word Jesus spoke to him. Boom, he took Christ at his word. Well, let's summarize. God the Savior is not willing that any should perish. He said that. Christ is the greatest display of God's love. Jesus paid the price for sin on the cross with his arm. What a way to die. With your arms stretched out. Do you know why? Why did he die that way? To show that his arms were open to the world. See, it's a picture. It's a picture of his arms outstretched and opened wide, welcoming. In fact, Paul adds to it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, to it, God was in Christ reconciling the world. As Christ was hanging on the cross, God was inside looking out through Christ's arms at the world. Finally, are you sure that you're holding on to Christ by faith today? That's a good question. Let's all stand. And as you stand, I just want to close with something that happened to me way back in the, the 70s. I used to be a school bus driver. I've done a lot of stuff in life. And I was driving the bus, one of those big yellow ones in Denver. And I'll never forget the man that I was working for, the story he told me about what had been recently in the Denver paper. There was a story about this couple in Denver that, that couldn't have children. They went through all the fertility testing and everything else. And finally, they had a child. And they were so thankful for that child that they wouldn't leave that child. Either the husband or the wife never allowed the child out of their sight. I mean, they would never have dropped him off at our nursery. I mean, because they had to be there physically to protect that child. And that went on for the first two years of their life. And finally, the husband said, you know what, honey? We're getting worn out. We need to go out once just by ourselves so they interviewed and they left about a 50 foot long list for this babysitter who had to know you know taekwondo and cpr and everything else you know and they left their baby in the house with her went out for a quick one hour just you know a little quick takeout place and eat and come back and they went and as they came back they had to pull off the side of the road because a fire truck was going by so they went a little further another fire truck went by they pulled over and they got into their development and and there was smoke and there were blinking lights and they were so thankful as they turned their road that they didn't think it was their road till they got around the corner and their house was totally like you couldn't see the house it was one of those covered in flames so the wife just about fainted and couldn't even stand the husband rushes out of the car runs up to the front door and the the firemen hold him back and he says my daughter my daughter and the babysitter standing right there and she says yes yes it blew up it happened so fast the fireman's in there i told him right where the nursery was and the fireman had gone in to the burning house to save the girl in the crib and finally that fireman valiantly you know smoke inhalation burnt comes out with this safety blanket where he had wrapped the baby up and he comes out the front door and actually falls down and they grabbed him and dragged him away and the parents were there breathlessly as they pried out of his burnt arms that little bundle from the nursery and the mother and father were looking there and that blanket was pulled back and they looked full into the face of the life-size doll that always was in the crib with their daughter. And the fireman in the smoke and the dark and the flame grabbed the wrong thing in the crib. And you know, I, that, I'll never forget that. I don't know what it had to do with me driving the bus, but he told me that story, I guess, to be careful with the kids, I guess. But you know what, when in my mind, I thought there are going to be people in Matthew 7, they're going to be standing in front of the judgment seat of Christ, or the great white throne, and they're going to be standing there with their little bundle like this, and Jesus is going to say, okay, I'm going to pull back the blanket and see what you have in there. And they hold it out, and he pulls it back, and he says, yeah, well, you got the church in here. You don't have Christ. You got your baptism in here. You don't have Christ. You got your folks in here. You got your wife. But I don't know you. 
depart from me. And he'll say, but Lord, we did, we did, we did, we did. And he says, yeah, you did all that, but I never knew you. You don't have the real thing. You're holding on to the wrong thing. Are you sure? I mean, just for your own eternal sake, are you sure that you're just trusting Jesus Christ? Holding on to him like a life preserver, that he already suffered hell for you, and you're just trusting him alone. That's the message that we're going to see Jesus tell us over and over again. But that's the message of salvation. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that none of us will hold on to anything but you, O Christ. And I pray if there's anyone here who is not sure that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is their hope of salvation, O Lord, that they would today cry out to you right where they're standing and say, Jesus you're my only hope. Jesus, you died in my place. Jesus, I want your water of life. I want you to overwhelm me. You'll do it all if we just reach out to you. We don't have to ask for every single piece. We just need all of you, and we get your salvation. Oh, Lord, I pray that anybody that needs help, that they would come, the elders who are here at the end of the service, the tightest two women that are here at the end of the service, but most of all, you're here, and your arms are still open wide. I pray that some who don't know you will trust you today. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.